Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. We are continuing our discussion of consequentialism today by looking at examples of consequentialism in the Bible. Now, I feel the need to preface this with uh, the acknowledgement that, of course, I am having to make some educated guesses here, as most of the time the Bible doesn't really explain all of the motivations and thought processes of individuals in the Bible as as they're making their decisions. So, yeah, I am going to argue that many of these characters are showing consequentialism, but, of course, I do acknowledge that I can't guarantee that that's the case because I don't have that insider knowledge, and neither does anybody else. But I think in most of the cases that I'm going to put forward, you can see how consequentialism is almost certainly at least one aspect of why the people are making the decisions that they're making. And I'm going to argue that the consequentialism that we see in the Bible is rarely or never seen in a good light. I'm not going to say never hands down because I just don't know all of the stories in the Bible and I can't think of all of them right off the top of my head. So you might be able to find some stories that seem like consequentialism is encouraged. Uh, but I'm going to argue that I really don't think that's the case. And I'm going to give you a lot of examples of individuals who seem to implement a consequentialist ethic and why that's problematic in the Bible. We'll begin with kind of our overarching case study. And after that, we'll get into just briefly listing a number of other references. Let's start with the case study of Jesus's crucifixion. When we think about the crucifixion of Christ, we could condemn many different groups of people. We could certainly condemn the Jewish leaders, and maybe even that's the group that, that most of us want to condemn the most, because they're the ones who instigated and initiated the the trial and and pushed things through and they were a large part of the crowd and and getting Jesus crucified. So, yeah, the Jewish leaders had had some pretty significant responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. You've got the the peasants or the the crowd whoever composed the crowd that was calling for Jesus' crucifixion. And even to a certain extent you have the disciples who deserted Jesus. And had they stuck around, maybe they probably wouldn't have really been able to change that much. Uh, I doubt it. Now, Jesus did have more than 12 disciples, so um, maybe maybe if most of his disciples stuck around, he could have made a pretty good stand. I don't know. But nevertheless, even, even if they couldn't have changed things, their faithlessness and desertion certainly makes them culpable to a certain extent for, uh, even if not his crucifixion, it, uh, it was a betrayal. Point is, there are a lot of people responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And we can throw Rome in, in there uh, and, and the leaders that Jesus goes to trial with and talks to as well. 
You know, the interesting thing, though, is that there is one individual in this whole process who usually garners our empathy and avoids harsh criticism, even though this individual, I would argue, was the most responsible for the death of Jesus, and that is Pontius Pilate. Now, we empathize with Pilate. I empathize with Pilate because of all the people in this in this issue, um, Pilate really had this thrust upon him. The, the Pharisees kind of pursued Jesus and, and kept butting heads with him, and they were conniving, and there was a lot of premeditation there. You also had disciples, and they chose to follow Jesus because they believed in him and, and what he said, so they were choosing involvement with Jesus as well. And then there were the, the bystanders in the crowd who just had this bloodlust. I mean, they could have gone home, they could have gone to the market, they could have gone on their merry way and done whatever else they wanted to do that day. They didn't have to call for an innocent man's blood, but they decided to. They chose to participate. Pilate, on the other hand, he had Jesus thrust into his court, and he had to make a judgment. He had to make a judgment one way or the other. I mean, we can we can pity that guy, because what was he supposed to do? And if you, if you know a little bit about who Pilate was and, and his history, and I'll recommend a, a pretty good just like uh, over overview source for this. There's a, um, a good YouTube channel. I can't remember the name of it right now, like 10 Minute Bible or something, 10 Minute Bible Hour. Um, but it, it's just a really interesting look at, at who Pilate was from what little we know about him. And what little we know is that Pilate probably wasn't one of the like uh, the major uh, in the in the aristocratic class. He wasn't like this guy who was a shoe in for for some great position. He probably got in due to some circumstances uh, which allowed him to get in. And and in a normal Roman culture, he uh, and time period, he wouldn't have really been able to get that position. But because of just some happenstance, he was able to to eke out this position. And also the position that he, he does hold here isn't the greatest position because of, of the place. It's not really seen as a, as a wonderful place to be, but it, it's a potential stepping stone for Pilate. And so far, Pilate has not had a, a very good interaction with the Jewish people. There have been, there's at least one or two other potential revolts dealing with like uh the roman banners and and you know, jewish uh ideals about idolatry and and coinage and just different things uh where they kind of butt heads and pilate tries to hold his ground and the jewish people unexpectedly hold their ground and pilate's like i i can't really kill them all so you know he's kind of seen as weak he has to back down rome's not really happy that there are these people pushing the buttons with them and and starting these potential revolts. So Pilate's really on shaky ground with the Jewish people, but he's also on shaky ground with Rome. And if you make one misstep with Rome, 
and keep your position and your life and everything, you're lucky. If you do it two or three times, that's a big problem. So in summary, Pilate isn't an inherently important person in ancient Rome. He's disposable because of who he is, who he was born as, as well as the the position that he holds here in this uh, faraway place that's not all that important. So Pilate's disposable. And Pilate's already made a misstep before, at least one. And he, he really can't afford to make another misstep. So here he is. He has this this uh, this case thrust into his presence, and he has to judge. And he has to be here actually the the ultimate judge. I mean, if you think about it, Judas helped to catch Jesus, but that's all all Judas could really do. He didn't have any more power. The religious leaders they were able to accuse Jesus. That's all they were really able to do. The disciples were only able to show solidarity and and faithfulness. They couldn't really do much else. Christ's fate essentially rested solely on Pilate's shoulders. And that's not even something that I have to assert without evidence, because beyond all of this evidence that we have for who Pilate is and the situation and all these other players, John 19.10 uh, we have Pilate quoted as saying to Jesus, don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Pilate acknowledges that, look, the power's in my hands. I can free you. I can crucify you. That's the choice that I have before me right now. So hands down, Pilate is the individual most responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus because that decision to free Jesus or let him go rested on Pilate alone. Now, why do I have so much empathy and why do we Christians have so much empathy for Pilate? Um, There are probably a lot of reasons. And I think having a situation thrust upon you does seem like it is a bit different than, you know, conniving like the Pharisees were and, and basically trying to have premeditated murder. Nevertheless, that's still a big problem when you could free the Savior of the universe or you could crucify him. But we give Pilate a pass because we can really empathize with that. We can understand his consequentialism, his his notion of, well, if I just kill this one guy... I mean, I don't really want to. It's this one guy's life. It's a decision I don't like. But really, if I kill him, the Jews are going to be happy. They're not going to revolt. That's going to save Jewish lives because if they revolt and Rome puts them down, at least Jews are going to die. Maybe some Roman soldiers are going to die. And then not only that, but on top of that, Pilate's life and family, probably there would be some pretty serious repercussions in his life. So what's one guy's life for for some harmony and peace in the kingdom? And ultimately that's what it came down to. Pilate was saying one guy for lots of people. And that that's just the decision I'm gonna have to make. And we get that. 
we understand that, and we don't really come down nearly as hard on Pilate as we come down on the other players here. It's interesting that that uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, actually says somewhat of the of the same thing, where he says, "Isn't it better that one man should die for the people?" Yet, at least in the story of Jesus, we recognize that 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 is just absolute horror. It's terrible. It's evil that we would be willing to sacrifice innocence and goodness for a little bit of pragmatism and and this uh, this outcome that seems to be better because it saves more people from from harm. And we also we can look at Pilate's attempt to absolve his complicity with evil by washing his hands and in, in some water symbolically. And we recognize that that's that's futile. I mean, what is what is the point of doing that? You can say that you're clean, but you're not because you just made a terrible decision. Ironically, we try to do the very thing that Pilate did. And for some reason, we think that it's going to work for us. We try to be consequentialists and embrace an evil and forego what is the good because we think that the thing that's more important than the good is an outcome we desire or an outcome we think God desires. Now, I think we do that in in many situations, and we will get to specific conundrums in uh, in later episodes. And I'm gonna show you how you know I w- I was doing it, and still am doing it in my life in the next few chapters. And and certainly, I think one of the the biggest and most recent events was how we embraced the lesser of two evils idea, how we embrace consequentialism in the last presidential election. I just think that's a problem. So let me summarize this this case study here of Pilate Up with just quoting my the the last two paragraphs in this section in my book because I, I feel like I was able to write it better than I can say it and I'm not going to be able to say it more succinctly or better. So here's my quote. Like Pilate and like our forefathers, We 21st century pragmatists offer Jesus up to beatings and scourgings, hopeful that such morsels will be sufficient to abate the bloodthirsty evil which desires more blood. We mar Jesus through our moral compromises, hopeful that through them we will be able to calm the crowds and gain some sort of advantage over our society, typically through politics. When we've perpetrated as much harm as we're willing to do to our innocent Savior, when we've compromised ourselves as far as we're willing to go, only then do we give society over to itself and wash our hands of what follows. But the damage is already done. We've marred the name of Christ and we've ensured his crucifixion. He is now so disfigured from our beatings that onlookers have little choice but to look on him and mock him. We have compromised the truth of our Lord, and if truth can be compromised by the only ones declaring that truth exists, then as Pilate asked, What really is truth, then? It's nothing. It's worthless. And those around us know it. I'm ashamed to say that cultural Christianity has been set on a course to crucify Jesus again, though this time by his own followers, crucifying him as a criminal and not as our Savior. 
The world sees what we Christians are willing to compromise. They see what we're willing to do. They see the types of people we're willing to stand behind. They see the self-interest and the issues we emphasize. Sadly, we Christians acknowledge all of these compromises as necessary. We acknowledge our complicity in compromise, yet we somehow think this is a good thing. We're doing it for the greater good, which somehow justifies our moral evil. We call this evil good, wash our hands, then act as if such a thing could absolve us of the evil we're doing. But it can't. We may like to think that what we're doing is sacrificing on behalf of God, but we would do well to remember that God desires obedience over sacrifice. What we so often like to call sacrifice is no such thing. It's disobedient pragmatism. Through such pragmatism, we inadvertently disassociate ourselves from God and distort His image to the world. That is how I, I essentially see it. I mean, we are pilot in, in our culture. Our, we cultural Christians are pilots because we uphold some other ethic. Some, we uphold the outcome as that which gives us our moral guidance. And in doing such, we, in our, our lives lived out, in our testimonies, those of us who say that we're disciples of Christ, we disfigure him through, through our lack of holiness and through our, our lack of trust in him and his control of, of the outcomes. Well, I'd, I would love to end with the example of Pilate because I, th- I think it's just such a powerful example. It's the like culminating example of consequentialism in the Bible because you can, you can really empathize with Pilate. You can see how, how uh, the consequentialism occurred. Uh, and it's the story of Jesus. I mean, all of these things come together. You just You know what right is. And it's all so clear, but um, nevertheless, I think it's it's going to be good for you to see some other places where I think you can see consequentialism at play, and and the theological problems that that are present in it. So you've got Cain, probably uh, one of the first examples of consequentialism, and Cain brought his best to God rather than that which God commanded. He brought the, the fruit of his, his fields. He was a farmer, and he had good stuff to bring to God, but that's not what God wanted. Um, so Cain sacrificed, but he wasn't obedient. And through that, God rejected him, and that probably was part of what led to him killing his brother, his jealousy. Abraham lied to save his life twice, um, lied about his his wife slash sister. Abraham, uh, the consequentialist again, decides to help God out. And I mean, this is noble in a sense because Abraham believes God's promise about the child that he's going to have, but he can't figure out how God's going to do it. So he tries to help God out a little bit. And, and you know, kudos to Abraham for trusting God that that. God was going to give him a son. Nevertheless, uh, when Abraham tried to help God out rather than be patient and rest in in God bringing about what he promised, he had a child with his servant. And 
for whatever reason, I know that a lot of a lot of conservatives focus on one aspect of that that story and Ishmael and his lineage and all that stuff. But you know, the the really terrible part is, I mean, Abraham uh, then kicked out Hagar and Ishmael, and the only reason they didn't die in the wilderness was because an angel had to come and save them. So the story is just beyond terrible because uh there there are all kinds of injustices and uh and things that go on with it in Abraham's attempt to help God. Jephthah sacrifices his daughter uh to God and I know that some people try to get around what I think actually happened there um by by turning it into metaphor. Uh nevertheless, you know, you've got this this guy who makes a promise to God that the first thing that comes out of his house, he will sacrifice. And so he makes a, a rash promise to God, but then when he recognizes that his daughter came out of the house, you know, rather than say, well, you know what? God doesn't want human sacrifices, so you know I should repent of the, the stupid vow I made. He goes ahead with it and, and kills her because that's what brought him victory in battle. So... No, you gotta you gotta kill your own daughter for your rash vow and stick to your consequentialism. You got Saul's disobedient sacrifice that we highlighted uh, before, and I'm sure we'll come back to where Saul decided to sacrifice to God rather than obey Him, and God dismissed him as king for that reason. And Samuel was ticked, and it, it was just bad because obedience is better than sacrifice. We see in future. Israel, that they attempt to make alliances with foreign nations, particularly Egypt. I think Isaiah 31, Jeremiah 42 are some examples. And it's the smart thing to do to fight this other bigger foreign power that's coming in to take you down, but it's not the right thing to do. God gets ticked and uh, Israel falls because of it. Yet we see other kings who, rather than make foreign alliances, trust in God and God does miraculous things to save them. Uh, I think Sennacherib's army's defeat by the angel is one example of that. Uh, I don't remember that story in full exactly, but I think that's that's one example of somebody who trusted in God to fight for them rather than trying to make foreign alliances that God explicitly said don't do. But you know, I can imagine... Israel, probably a lot like uh, certain brands in the United States where, you know, this is God's chosen nation. And if you're in Israel, more explicitly, it is God's chosen nation. And you want that nation to survive, and surely God would want that nation to survive. So I need to do the smart thing to keep that nation going because isn't that what God would want? And they make sacrifices through moral compromise in order to accomplish something that they think God would want accomplished, rather than just obeying him in the things that God explicitly said he wanted them to do. The the means he said they should use, and uh, avoiding the means he told them not to use. You really see consequentialism all over the place, and uh, I think that's because consequentialism is appealing. It's appealing to me all the time still, even though God has helped me to begin to recognize when it's present, it's still so appealing to me, and it, it's still something that I often miss, I often don't see. 
And there are a lot of reasons why it's so appealing and why we see it so much as an ethic. I think, first of all, it's because it allows us to determine good and evil. I mean, isn't that the age-old sin? Isn't that the sin? That's Adam and Eve's sin. And eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like, you get to decide what's good and what's not. It's what was always bugging Jesus. It's this, God gave you his will. You know that the cross is his will. Yet, Satan tries to tempt him in the desert to accomplish God's will in three different ways, right? Through uh, economic means controlling the masses, through uh, the religious institution, and through um, through political means through the kingdoms. And you can go back to uh, our episode in season one on the messianic role and, and hear a lot more about that. Uh, but then you also see Peter trying to tell Jesus he's not going to suffer. And you see Jesus sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see Peter pull out a sword and and show Jesus that, hey, I'll fight with you. Let's do this. But Jesus refuses it and heals instead. And you see uh, Luke say that Jesus could have called legions of angels. I mean, you see time and time again that Jesus is tempted to put down the means that God has given to him and to take control. And Philippians 2 tells us that this is one of the, the biggest ways that, that Jesus served, was that he didn't count equality with God. Um, he didn't grasp at that. But he submit, submitted to God even in suffering pointless death, seemingly pointless death. And, I mean, that's that's what the point of uh, of one of the points of Jesus's death was is that we submit to God no matter what. It's not it's what Adam and Eve didn't do, and it's what Christ was ultimately able to do perfectly. But we love to control things. It's why Israel wants to make an alliance with Egypt. It's why we want uh, somebody. I forget Falwell's quote, but uh, so we want a fighter for us. We want somebody who, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, those might be some nice ideals, but that's not what we want in the White House. We want a fighter. We want somebody who's going to throw off the cumbersome fruits of the Spirit because that's just not what gets you anywhere in this world. And I'm not even that cynical to think that all of this desire for control is because we we want to be in control personally. I think part of it is maybe like Saul or Cain or other people uh, we see in the Bible is that we want to feel useful for God. We want to feel like we are doing something for God. Now, Israel making an alliance with Egypt, I'm sure that there were were people in, in Israel who wanted an alliance with Egypt to save their own skins. But there were probably also some pretty uh, religious people who wanted to do it for God for Yahweh, because they wanted his name to be great. I'm sure that you could look at a lot of cases of consequentialism in the Bible, and you could look at a lot of uh, individuals who are consequentialists in the last election or in any of these these things that we're going to talk about, these specific ways that consequentialism rears its head, and you find a lot of righteous, good, godly people 
who aren't trying to control things for themselves, but believe that they're trying to control things for God, and they want to feel useful for Him. And I get that. I understand that. And that's that's noble in a sense, because you want to accomplish something for God. But the thing that we need to understand is that it's not about us circumventing God's means. That's not what makes us useful for God. What makes us useful is that we are broken and contrite, we're repentant, we are willing to submit to his means. And even if those means don't seem useful, our job isn't to uh, to prop ourselves up or puff ourselves up and and try to be shiny for God um, and, and something that is we perceive as useful. Our job is to submit. And, and that's the hard part, not only to not have control, but because submission to God's means often means that we don't have immediate results. Consequentialism is so alluring because not only does it give us control and not only does it make us feel useful, but we often see more immediate results than if we rely on God's means. You know, a God who uh, takes 2,000 years to bring about the culmination of his promise to Abraham, a God who leaves his people in slavery for almost half a millennium, uh, a God who leaves the child-sacrificing Canaanites unjudged for about the same period of time, half a century, half a millennium, a God who doesn't snap his fingers and uh, save everyone or damn everyone from the get-go, but takes thousands of years to provide a Savior. And that Savior, when he comes, he doesn't come and save. He uh, he lives for 30 years before he really does anything of note. And then he dies on a cross, and it's been 2,000 years since then. And we haven't seen the the ultimate restoration of things. We're talking about a patient God who, uh, not only in this, this overarching patience, but even in, in a lot of stories that you see in the Bible, when you see people waiting um, for uh, a wall to be built, or the temple to be built, or to see the promised land, time and time again, God is, is a patient God who, who takes his time and works through relationships and doesn't seek the immediate results. But that's not really comforting to us. We want to know that what we did worked. And that's that's one of the big allures of consequentialism. It helps you to seek out those immediate results uh, much better than patient faithfulness on God's means. Patient, obedient, holy faithfulness is hard. The method doesn't always seem to work for accomplishing worldly things but it's God's desire for us. It's God who fights for us and is uh, the victor and the judge. We see that in Hezekiah's foolish prayer and when God answered that with a mighty victory because God fought for Hezekiah, while at the same time we see Hosea's uh, wise alliance with Egypt, it was crushed in God's judgment. We see that faithfulness is what God desires. And we need to remember that God's will is very clear for our lives. 
none of us may have an explicitly clear directive like Abraham or Saul. God might not speak to us and tell us to build an ark. Uh, he might not appear to us on a mountaintop. But God's call is very, very clear. The lives we are to lead, the fruit we're to bear, and the characteristics we're to promote are clear. Our job as Christians is to live holy, faithful lives lived in hopeful dependence on God's power, not our own. Full stop. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it.